Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Today we are talking about Yemen, and we're talking about it with a truly phenomenal advocate for peace and justice in the Middle East, Kate Gould, Legislative Director for Middle East Policy of the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Now, when I say Legislative Director, what I mean to say is that Kate is a lobbyist and a very effective one who has been profiled by Congressional Quarterly for her work in gaining passage of the Iranian nuclear deal. And now she has turned her attention additionally to Yemen and ending U.S. support of the Saudi-led war there. Here is why. Yemen is the largest humanitarian crisis on the planet. More people are starving there than anywhere else on Earth. The U.S. arguably has more power to save millions of human beings' lives in Yemen than they do anywhere else on the planet. So that alone should make it an issue everyone pays attention to. But even if that's not enough for you, (laughs) then it's important to note how this has global consequences because these arms that were, you know, in in Saudi Arabia is our number one client for these arms, that that has a global impact. This is a way that we can actually get Congress to start paying attention and scrutinizing not just arms sales to Saudi Arabia, but to dictatorships and strongmen around the world. Now, I recorded this interview on November 22nd, 2018, which is important to note as things are changing very rapidly on this issue because Kate and people like Kate are making so much headway. So what I think I'm going to do is just at the end of the episode, um, I'll give you an update on what's happening as of January 31st as I load this because it's actually very, very exciting. So Kate has been extremely generous with her time explaining to me about the war in Yemen. And simultaneously, I have been doing a bunch of research to get the Talking Human Rights website ready with a timeline and a glossary so that you can follow along as you're listening. So what I want to do is just very quickly recap all of that so that we're all on the same page. So why is there a Saudi-led war in Yemen and why is the U.S. involved? This is one of those things where we could go back decades, but I'm just going to start where Kate started, which is in 2011 with the Arab Spring, as Yemenis were watching events in Tunisia and in Egypt, watching strongmen leaders who had dominated the political scenes there for decades, suddenly overthrown by popular protest. And the Yemenis are watching all of this, and they decide to try their hand and get rid of their own strongman, President Saleh. So this is a show about human rights, and I just want to make a quick point, which is that if you read human rights reporting about Saleh, you're typically going to be reading about civil and political rights violations. Um, You'll read about disappearances and extrajudicial executions and laws on the books, preventing the media from criticizing the government and things like that. And I certainly would not want to diminish the importance of those rights violations. Saleh was a man who was committing gross violations of human rights before he was even the president of Yemen, before Yemen was even unified as a modern state, back when he was a military leader of North Yemen. And that's there's a lot of that in the timeline. So I don't want to diminish that. But what I do want to point out is that when Yemenis rose up against Saleh, they were actually talking primarily about economic and social rights. They were talking about what happens when a man rules a country for 30 years, taking hundreds of millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia and later from the United States and siphons it off to make himself rich while allowing Yemen to remain the poorest country in the Middle East. And I make this point because I 
I imagine most of the audience for this podcast will be American. And I think it's really important that Americans, when we look at rights, that we understand that while our, our national ethos tends to be very oriented towards civil and political rights, and we've done a lot to kind of push that ethos out into the world, whereas that's our orientation in many parts of the world, people take economic and social rights really seriously, too. So it's important to just really understand what is at play. In any case, the Yemenis mount a series of demonstrations that are so big they cannot be ignored. However, before they can chart their own new path, Saudi Arabia steps in to lead the settlement negotiations. And according to this negotiated settlement, Saleh will step down in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Installed in his place is his deputy, Hadi. And Hadi is supposed to face election in 90 days, but when election day comes, he is the only person on the ballot. Fast forward a few years to 2014, Hadi is still in office and an indigenous militant group called the Houthis, which took part in the uprising, comes down and takes over the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, putting Hadi under house arrest. So Hadi flees to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia intervenes in March of 2015 with an air war and later a blockade to reinstall him. And the United States under Barack Obama back Saudi Arabia. And we'll talk about that a lot. There is a tendency of the United States to back Saudi Arabia, which has gone mostly unchecked until now. Now we are seeing a shift. On the one hand, we have President Donald Trump, who has increased support of Saudi Arabia and increased support for this war and gets very excited about weapons sales. But on the other, we are seeing members of Congress on both sides of the aisle stand up and say the United States should not be in this war. Those voices are starting to make headway. And that is why we're talking to Kate, who has been working with legislators to do just that, to get the U.S. out of this war. I decided to start the conversation with Kate there with her work and with her approach working with legislators. And that's because I've known Kate for 10 years. And all through that time, she's been just this incredible expert on human rights in the Middle East, so incredibly knowledgeable. But she's also been this staunch advocate of if you want to see the realization of human rights in the Middle East and you want to see peace and justice, the best place to start if you are an American is to lobby the United States Congress because we have such a huge impact there. So we've been talking about this for years and um, she's pretty much brought me over to her side. But I, I but I want to I just want to talk about it more. And so that's where I started asking Kate, why is congressional advocacy her tool of choice? Yeah, because I've seen it work. I've seen firsthand that members of Congress actually change their mind. Um, they change their position. They become leaders on issues because they hear from their constituents that it's important. And one example tying to something we'll talk about later today on Yemen, you know, we have the incoming chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith. Um, and when he was asked recently about why it is that he's become such a champion, he's become one of the leading champions in Congress in favor of ending all U.S. military support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen uh, that has resulted in the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. He has become a leader on that, and, he, and when he's asked, why do you care about this? And he has said, it's because constituents have brought it to my attention. Um, and I know some of the constituents who brought it to his attention, so that's been exciting to hear. And, and you know, he's somebody who, he's clearly um, 
so deeply knowledgeable on so many topics and so fully briefed. But you know, members of Congress are really inundated with so many important topics. And so in order for them to know about which ones where you know they should really be paying attention to which ones they um, they can make a difference on which ones people in their communities in their districts and their states care about then that you know is it's constituents that bring that to their attention and so um, you know I did when I was growing up and in college I was involved in lots of different kinds of activism and yes all of it's important in terms of organizing protests and you know educational events on campus and what I found so surprising in getting to know about FCNL is the idea of actually developing a relationship with members of Congress. But when I think about, you know, throughout uh, my activism and all the different causes that I've been involved in and, and the different people I've known who've been involved in different causes, when we think about, okay, how is it that, you know, any of us became active on any of these issues, it's usually because of some kind of personal relationship. It's somebody told us about, and maybe it's somebody told us about a book, somebody told us about an issue, somebody told us about a crisis, somebody alerted us to something on the t- you know, on TV or on Twitter or Facebook, but it comes down to somebody who we know, who, you know, who we trust uh, alerting us to this crisis and this way that we can make an impact. And the exact same thing is true for members of Congress. You know, they're people too, and they get involved in things because people that they know and people that they trust alert them of, um, you know, of a certain issue. That makes a lot of sense. Um, switching gears to save time, and of course, it still ended up being quite long. I attempted in the introduction to summarize how we got to where we are in Yemen today starting with the successful uprising of Yemenis in 2011 to overthrow President Saleh. And then after all of that hard work of the Yemenis, they were greeted with this negotiated settlement that the successor to Saleh would be his vice president of almost 20 years. So now we have President Hadi. So what is the local reaction to this? So um, there's this indigenous militant group in Yemen called the Houthis, and they were not um, happy about this. And so they, and unfortunately, took up arms to oust um, this fledgling government. And they, in, so in 2014, they actually took over the capital, Sana'a, and, and they um, took it under their control. They pushed out this new government there. Um, and I mean, it was government is a bit of a, you know, makes it sound like something really established, but it was really, it's, it's President Hadi, who is now, who's been in exile in Saudi Arabia, you know, now spent more time as president in Saudi Arabia over these past few years than in Yemen. So Saudi Arabia launched this invasion in March 2015 with U.S. backing, and the idea was to fight against the Houthis, against this militant group, and to reinstall this fledgling government to power. But of course, that hasn't happened. Now, the, the war has been going on for almost four years, and it has only meant um, really death and destruction. I mean, there has the battle lines haven't changed much. We still have this official president of Yemen living in Saudi Arabia, unable to come back to the country. We still have the Houthis in control of Sana'a. And we're going to continue to have the Houthis in control of these areas. I mean, they are a political force in the country that does have to be addressed in some way. There are some legitimate um, grievances. And at the same time, the Houthis have been involved in gross human rights violations. I mean, they've been using child soldiers. They've been planting landmines. I mean, just really horrific atrocities that they've been involved in. 
And then meanwhile, the Saudi coalition has been really, I mean, using food as a weapon, as, as it's like blockading the country, then stopping and delaying food from getting in and out, driven up the cost of goods so people can't afford food, and you have half of the country on the brink of starvation. Not to mention, you know, that you also have this air war. So Saudi Arabia is just ruthlessly bombing the country. So the vast majority of the civilian casualties that we've seen from the war, from the actual fighting and shelling, have been from the Saudi-led coalition. I mean, they're the only force that has actual... Um, you know, an air force and that is dropping bombs. There's, there's definitely, there's atrocities on all sides, but the one that the U.S. is supporting is the Saudi side. So the U.S. has been involved since the very beginning of March of 2015. That's what the Obama administration was involved in this war. And now the Trump administration has been involved, but you know, this is only resulting in more death and destruction and real starvation. And in order to get out of it, we're going to have to have a political settlement. And that's only going to happen when we have a ceasefire, when we, when the Saudis stop bombing the country, stop blockading, stop starving the country, and really push toward a peace agreement. So I want to break in really fast and say that we have some materials on our website that go with this episode and will help listeners. If you'd like to, you know, be browsing them as you're listening, you can do that too. There's a glossary um, where you can learn all sorts of things about the Houthis and the Saleh and the relationship between the two. You can also look at our timeline to see all of the different ways the U.S. has been involved with this campaign and uh, the other ways we're involved in Yemen, which Kate will talk a little bit about too. And what you'll also find through it all is this constant meddling of Saudi Arabia and Yemen's affairs up to now where it's just expending vast resources and spending so much political capital with the U.S. to bomb and starve the Yemenis. And so I want to ask you, Kate, why does Saudi even care to do this? Like, why is Saudi so invested in what happens in Yemen? There's Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, who's now Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and who we all know in the context of the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who in March of 2015, when this war was starting, had just become the Saudi Minister of Defense. So people often say this was a power grab and his way to build a portfolio for himself. And then there's the ability of the Saudis to dominate and control Yemeni ports and resources. And then there are the Houthis. And something I really like about how you've communicated about this is that you don't seem to romanticize the Houthis, which I think is really good. So I want to talk about that. Like, what are the Saudi concerns about the Houthis? Uh, the Houthis, as, you know, have been involved in gruesome atrocities and from, you know, child soldiers and landmines and shelling. I mean, there's been a lot of concern about them you know, using civilian shields. Um, so there's fully legitimate reasons why they do not want them to be controlling their borders. And there have been attacks in Saudi Arabia from the Houthis. So they are definitely, uh, there's, there's real self-defense concerns. But the real threat from the Houthis to Saudis at the border, I mean, that has been an issue that has only become, you know, a, a greater threat as the war has progressed. So um, they're also very concerned, of course, about about Iranian influence in Yemen. Now, usually in a lot of American media attention, it's the first thing that's brought up. But I think I mean, it is an important issue. Uh, I think often in American media, it gives the impression that Iran has a much bigger role than they actually have. But Iran has been supporting the, the Houthis. They've been mainly tactical and 
advisor support, advisory support, you know, for the Houthis. They, uh, while the Houthis have railed against foreign military intervention, especially the longer that this war has dragged on, the more that they are willing to get more and more support from the Iran. So while the, the justification is we're trying to confront Iranian and end Iranian malign influence in Yemen, in fact, we've we'll only emboldened Iran. While here in the U.S., generally, we've had a lot more media attention on Syria and then pretty scarce attention on Yemen. In Iran, that's been reversed. There's People are much more aware of what's going on in Yemen. They're not aware of what's going on in Syria, and the state media really tries to prevent people from finding out about Iran's really just horrific role in supporting the, the Assad regime in Syria. They have a lot more in their media, a lot more people exposed to the, the pictures of starving Yemeni children, starving Yemeni people, and and they're using that as fodder for the Iranian propaganda machine, using it to say, look, the US, the UK, France, they're all hypocrites because they're complaining about Iranian human rights violations, but they're supporting these atrocities in Yemen. So it's actually emboldening Iran. It's, it's, it's strengthening Iran on the propaganda front. It's strengthening Iran geopolitically. It's, it's meant that the Houthi, it's kind of push the Houthis more into the arms of Iran. I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the Houthis have relied more and more on Iran, and so Iranian involvement has deepened. Another thing that's often not brought up is that while Iran has been given some support for the Houthis, we've been giving support for the Saudis, and the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, have been giving support to extremist militias, um, including and you know, now I mean, AP did this incredible expose highlighting how the Saudi-led coalition has actually paid off Al-Qaeda fighters. So the U.S. Is, um, has been on the same side as Al-Qaeda. I mean, that's, that's how crazy this all is. And so because the Houthis are actually fighting Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda on the Arabian Peninsula is the United States' primary counterterrorism target in Yemen. We're launching airstrikes to you know, destroy their positions, but simultaneously we've got Saudi that we're arming that is um, making deals with them. They, the, the Saudi-led coalition has sort of made this alliance of convenience of, okay, well, we're both against the Houthis, so we're going to fight together. But that it's included actually paying off and, and recruiting um, some of these more Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. So this really has long-term security consequences for the United States. I mean, this means, I mean, our, our first and foremost concern should be about the millions of people starving to death. Imagine, you know, people see their children not being able to get the food they need because if there's a... a U.S.-backed, Saudi-led coalition war, I mean, they know that that's the reason why they're not able to feed their children. Of course, people are going to be angry. Anybody would. So that's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. I mean, that, that really has long-term consequences. And, and you know, for the, for the parents that had to go and go to the school bus and see the remains of their children and find their remains of their children among the, the remnants of bomb fragments made in the United States, that is not something that is going to go away. I mean, that's going to have really a generational impact. 
This seems like a good time to remind our listeners that you are listening to Talking Human Rights. Our guest today is Kate Gould, who is Legislative Director for Middle East Policy at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Now, if you're not familiar with the FCNL, that is the lobbying arm based in Washington, D.C. of the Quakers. FCNL has been active on peace and justice issues, doing really effective work since 1943. Um, I want to ask about this issue we haven't covered yet, but that I keep reading about, which is that there's this specialized service that the United States is providing um, Saudi and the UAE with, which is that we are able to refuel their warplanes midair so that they don't have to go back to base for refueling. And can you just help me understand why this is such a priority to stop this refueling and and just what's going on there? Well, we do have some, some new news on that and that on Friday, the Trump administration announced that they will end refueling of Saudi coalition aircraft. So this is um, a huge victory that only happened as a result of major congressional pressure, major grassroots pressure on Congress to push you know, the administration to do this. However, this is subject to presidential discretion. I mean, Trump can turn on and off the refueling supply anytime. And so now we need Congress to really lock in this victory and say, no, we're gonna end all refueling. And we're, and we're gonna end it as a matter of law. It's going to be against the law to refuel the Saudi aircraft as they're committing atrocities and bombing um, schools and hospitals and cholera treatment clinics and all these things that they've done. They've bombed four doctors without borders hospitals in a single year in Yemen. I mean, that's the kind of devastation we've seen. So we need Congress to really, you know, to put a full kibosh on, on all refueling. But we we still are, yes, the the uh, arms sales have continued. The, you know, so far, Trump has said that he's going to continue to send bombs to Saudi Arabia. And in addition, while right now there's this new news as of last week that we're not refueling the coalition aircraft, we're continuing to provide intelligence um, for the Saudis so that they know where to strike. And they can use that information really however they want to. So it gives them, for example, when there's just like pictures of a certain area um, in Yemen that we have from our drones or whatever else, we give them that intelligence and they use it to to make their bombing selections, you know, to make their targeting selections. And, you know, some people would say, oh, well, then that means that we help them trying to minimize civilian casualties and so they won't target civilians. Well, we've seen the facts on the ground are that they keep bombing civilians. They are bombing schools and hospitals and residential areas and weddings and funerals. And so while the excuse is that we this is helping them avoid civilian casualties, we've seen over and over they've been mighty precise at actually bombing civilian targets. I mean, there uh, that there have been estimates from the Yemen Data Project where they've tracked every airstrike that the Saudi-led coalition has um, done, and they have found that at least a third of these airstrikes have hit civilian targets. So what did Trump say when he made this announcement about ending refueling? What they have said is that 
the Saudis now have the capacity to do more of their own mid-air refueling. So they're not as dependent on the United States anymore. And so we're doing this, in fact, that the administration even said that we're doing this, you know, kind of at the request of the Saudis. And that's what the Saudis have said as well. You know, well, we've, we've increased our capacity and so we don't need the U.S. as much anymore. That is what they have said. Um, the timing is something to take a look at because they did this right before Congress was going and is going to still vote on ending U.S. support for that, including refueling. It is clear that they could see the writing on the wall. They could see that Congress is prepared to really take decisive action on this and that if they had not ended refueling, that Congress may well have done it for them and, and Congress still should. I mean, let me be clear, it's, the work is not done yet. And at some point when nobody's paying attention, um, when there's not as much attention on this, of course, the, the murder of Khashoggi of the Washington Post journalist is a big part of this this whole political landscape, the sea change in U.S. Um, you know, relationship with the Saudis. But uh, when somebody's not paying attention to that as much anymore, when it sort of fades in the headlines and everybody's paying attention to something else, um, then they could turn on the refueling again. So that's why Congress really needs to lock this into law. But, but yeah, so that's what the administration has said. Uh, so we need to build on that, on that success. I mean, you know, and, and I think it shows that even Trump is, is susceptible to pressure from Congress, which is really because of pressure from the grassroots. So that is what they, you know, so they've said that they're, they're ending refueling now, but they have said they're continuing these arms sales. And Trump has said on many occasions and really has doubled down on this, that, well, we're going to continue to sell arms to Saudi because uh, there are a lot of jobs lined up that are, you know, dependent on, on these arms sales with Saudi. And that's, uh, and he's wildly inflated these kinds of numbers. And in fact, no, these, it's not about creating American jobs, um, that in fact, the uh, deal that we have with Saudi Saudi Arabia, this recent arms deal, a lot of the jobs would be actually in Saudi Arabia. It would be for people in Saudi Arabia. It wouldn't be for Americans. So the administration knows that they um, that these are not popular arms deals. And so we were expecting for them to be pushed through a lot sooner for Congress to vote on them. But given the whole, you know, the groundswell of opposition to U.S. support for the war, given the murder of Khashoggi, and it, you know, looks, um, well, very clear that, that it was the Saudis that have orchestrated this murder and that, um, and that it looks increasingly likely that the top levels of Saudi leadership were involved um, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi that, um, that you know, there's been a, a major groundswell of, of opposition to a blank check to Saudi Arabia, you know, from Congress. And the administration, I think, has seen that pressure and wanted to um, do something about it. There's definitely a lot of questions that we need to have answered about, okay, wait, do the Saudis actually have increased refueling capacity? What are, is the deal with that? But we should also understand that it's quite likely this was a face-saving way for them to to take action. So I want to ask you a little bit more about how you do your work and how you organize on this issue. I was reading a memo that you wrote in March of 2018 that stated you were expecting Trump to announce a bomb sale and you were encouraging members of Congress to oppose the sale. This could be totally obvious to anybody else listening, but how do you know that these sales are coming so that you can organize against them? 
We had heard from congressional staff, and there have been reports in the media about how these arms sales were in the works. They were in the pipeline. So basically what happens is um, for these particular sales that Raytheon, a defense, defense contractor, they negotiate a deal with the Saudi government, and then, but then in order for the State Department to be able to sell, send them from the United States to Saudi Arabia, they have to get a license, an export license. And in order for that license to go through, it actually has to go through Congress. Now, this happens all the time. This happens, you know, it's very regularly. Uh, these kinds of weapon sales move that way, but they don't get any attention from Congress. But in this case, there's been so much support building to block these sales. There's been so much opposition to the war building that, yeah, it, it's clear now uh, that, you know, if we have a sale, I mean, in this kind of environment, if try to, you know, if the Trump administration tries to push this through in Congress, then they would lose. I mean, that this would be a vote uh, that would pass on our side that we would be able to block the sale. Um, so in June of 2017, we had a vote, major vote on a big bomb sale to Saudi Arabia, and we got 47 senators to vote to block the sale. So for these kinds of sales, you only need 51. For a lot of legislation in the Senate, people may be familiar, you have to get to 60. There's a 60 vote threshold, but for this, you only have to get to 51, and we were at 47. So we were just four votes away from passing a resolution to block the sale, you know. So um, that's a really big deal. It just almost never happens. Congress rarely weighs in on any of these issues anyway, and that's why, and, and this was in the face of so much support for the sale from all the defense contractors. I mean, even though it's a Raytheon sale, that all the different defense contractors, all these, it, it sounded like a lot of them were getting involved um, because they knew that if one sale goes down, then Congress actually might start to scrutinize a lot more arms sales, you know, and then it's not just a um, rubber stamp that Congress put that it, there's actual scrutiny. I mean, the U.S., you know, I think a lot of Americans don't know we are the global, we're the number one global arms exporter. I mean, we are the number one gun runner for the world. And it's been that way for decades, that in the last decades, the U.S. arms sales have accounted for either half or a third of arms sales around the world. And, and you know, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, 98% um, of their sales are either from the US or from European countries. So it sounds like you can really make some headway here getting Congress to exercise oversight over bomb sales. I was also reading about some new legislation, Senate Joint Resolution 54, invoking the War Powers Resolution to end US support of the war in Yemen. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's uh, legislation introduced by a very interesting trio, um, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Mike Lee, and Senator Chris Murphy. So I think people uh, know who Senator Bernie Sanders is often. Uh, Senator Mike Lee is a constitutional conservative from Utah. Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee don't work together on a whole lot of issues, uh, as you might imagine. I mean, there, um, Mike Lee comes from a more conservative background. Uh, and then Senator Chris Murphy has really led the way on Yemen, certainly the first senator to draw attention to this issue. Uh, so they have teamed up on this legislation, SJ Res 54, and we're expecting a vote on that as early as, you know, the week of November 26th after they get back from Thanksgiving. 
Um, and this is legislation they actually voted on in March, last March, and there were 44 senators that voted in support of it. This time around, it's a whole different ballgame, right? It's a whole different political landscape. That was before the Khashoggi murder. That was before the August bus bombing of, you know, 40 children, 40 Yemeni kids. Uh, that was actually found, you know, it was, a, it was one of those bombs that, you know, was made in the United States of America, made by Lockheed Martin, that was used for that horrific school attack, school bus attack. So that was a before all that. So now we have a new opportunity to get to 51 and to pass this legislation. So what does it mean to invoke the War Powers Resolution? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? This year, we've seen a number of these War Powers fights, and it's really important because it's It's really a core issue for our democracy that well, we are a constitutional democracy. We have constitution that, um, you know, means that instead of having a monarchy decide things, that it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be run by the constitution. And the constitution is very clear about the fact that it's Congress that should decide whether to declare war. And so it's not the president. And now we've seen an erosion of this core constitutional value for, for many years. And we saw it, um, one example, one of many examples, is with Vietnam. The Congress never authorized that war, and yet we saw so many thousands and thousands of U.S. troops killed and then millions of um, Vietnamese people either killed or displaced um, by the, the, you know, the Vietnam War. So in 1973, uh, so very much as a, as a way to try to take the lessons of the Vietnam War and how to, to prevent that from ever happening again, from, to prevent this slide, the slippery slope into war, um, where, you know, you had Congress told repeatedly, well, we, we don't have to get authorization because we're just providing military support. We just have some advisors in Vietnam. Don't worry. It's just advisors. And then there became more and more advisors. And then we started sending more troops. And then, oh, but they weren't combat troops. They're just advisors. Well, then there became more and more of them. And then finally, you know, so finally we have, you know, full-blown war. Um, and Congress wanted to prevent that from happening again. So they passed the War Powers Resolution, and the War Powers Resolution of 1973 set out very clear guidelines saying that, you know, reminder, hello, uh, we, <laughs> we have a constitution, Congress has to be involved in this, and not only that, we're going to have consequences, that if the president doesn't actually come to Congress and seek permission before launching a war, then we're going to just set up this new mechanism so that any member of Congress can bring forward, you know, any senator can ensure that if there's, um, if we're involved in an unauthorized war, meaning if we're involved in a war that Congress never gave its permission to be involved in, then they can invoke the War Powers Resolution and they can force a vote on the Senate floor and they can withdraw all U.S. troops from that conflict. So Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, and um, Senator Chris Murphy, they uh, introduced this legislation, um, SJ Res 54, which was the first ever invocation of the War Powers Resolution to force a vote to end an unauthorized war. So that's kind of a mouthful. But basically, it was the first time the 
full powers of the War Powers Resolution were used to force a vote on the Senate floor to end a war. So that's a, um, a core issue where, I mean, you, you do have this really interesting alliance between progressives, between constitutional conservatives. There's been um, groups like the, uh, you know, groups affiliated with the Koch brothers. There have been groups like uh, Freedom Works. There have been groups, you know, definitely on the conservative side of things that have been stand- saying, yeah, we agree. We got to stand up for this constitutional duty that Congress has to reassert its war powers and to really take ownership over them and ensure that we don't have an imperial presidency, that we don't have, um, that we don't have the president, you know, executive overreach where they decide, they make all the decisions about war. So that's why, you know, this, this war powers issue is, is so important and it's important for Yemen because, yeah, we, we've had now for nearly four years, we've had this horrific war. We've had, the U.S. has been so deeply entrenched in this war and there's going to be consequences, clearly. I mean, there already are consequences, the most horrific of which are that millions of people are on the verge of starving to death, including children. I mean, that, you know, every 10 minutes, um, just in the course of our talking, there have already been more children who have, in Yemen, under the age of five, who have died from Stone Age diseases. I mean, diseases we have cures for, people should not be getting anymore, like cholera, which is only, you know, people only get when, or generally people just get when they when they don't have access to clean water. And what's happening is like sewage treatment facilities are being bombed and so sewage is running through the streets. And so of course people are picking up cholera. But um, we've been involved in all this and Congress has never signed off on it. So it has long, you know, there are generations of consequences. I mean, just think about um, those children on that bus that day that saw 40 of their classmates, uh, you know, we're talking about, I mean, nine-year-olds who've been killed. They're not going to ever forget that. And they're not going to forget, they know that the U.S. was involved in that. So that's going to have consequences um, long into the future. And so um, Congress has said, we have to be involved in these decisions, and if we're not, we're going to take decisive action. So that's why that's why we get to have all these votes. Rarely do we get votes on war and peace issues because leadership um, in Congress, we've seen this repeatedly, and you know they don't want to bring up votes on war and peace. But in this case, we, it just takes one senator to force a vote, and then we get a vote because thanks to this law passed in 1973 by Congress saying that that um, war powers resolutions, when you invoke the war powers, it gets special consideration. It gets to go to the floor. It doesn't have to go through a committee first. It doesn't have to get, you know, the speaker, the um, Senate majority leader to sign off on it. It just, within a certain time frame, it goes to the floor and we get to have a vote. So if somebody wants to engage on this issue and wants to help stop this war and stop the U.S.'s role in this war, what is important for them to communicate? What's important for them to know? Um, what's really important to know is that you don't need to be an expert on this at all. And there are very few experts on, even on Capitol Hill on Yemen. There are some, and there are some staffers who really know this issue inside and out. Um, but in general, you know, this is, this is a new issue to a lot of us. Um, but don't be intimidated by that. I mean, I think that's the most important thing is that members of Congress, um, what they're interested in is that their constituents care. And 
it really comes down to people caring about children starving or dying of cholera. It's the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history. So it's um, so it's really something where we do have, a, you know, we can have a really direct impact and make a big difference. And it starts with just telling your member of Congress, please oppose all U.S. military support for this war. Oppose all U.S. military support to Saudi Arabia, at least until this war has come to an end and there's a you know political settlement and end to the blockade. The number one concern is that it's just, it's, it's unconscionable that the U.S. is complicit in the deliberate starvation of human beings. Um, and on this scale, it's just beyond really anything that um, that should be contemplated. I mean, there there's just no excuse. There's no justification for the starvation of people. I, I, I wish that was enough to get the attention of members of Congress, and sometimes it is. Um, there are others that are more concerned about the impact of, um, you know, of how this war has strengthened Al-Qaeda. All right. This does not conclude my conversation with Kate about ending U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen, but it does conclude this episode, episode one of Talking Human Rights. Again, the conversation you just listened to was recorded on November 22nd, 2018. And as promised, I want to give you a little bit of an update since I'm loading this on January 31st, 2019. You'll remember the bill Kate and I discussed, introduced by Senators Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, and Chris Murphy, invoking the War Powers Resolution to end U.S. support of the war in Yemen. Now, that piece of legislation had not passed at the time of our recording, but a few weeks later, on December 13th, it did pass by 56 votes. Now, there was a companion bill in the House introduced by Representative Ro Khanna of California, which was unfortunately blocked by Paul Ryan. But as of this recording on January 31st, we have a new Congress, a new Democratic majority in the House, and two new bills, one in the House and another in the Senate, both invoking the War Powers Resolution to end U.S. support of the war in Yemen. So keep an ear out for an update on those bills and um, on a lot of other legislation that we think will be um, that's coming down the pipe. Until next time, this has been Talking Human Rights. I am your host, Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Kate Gould, Legislative Director for Middle East Policy of the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Sabette Partee is our assistant producer and editor. You can find us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com. Thanks for tuning in.